0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode
1: 128, The Paradox.
2: Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room.
1: Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's episode is going to run a little bit long, but last week it was a little bit short. So this would be a nice way to sort of even things out. And is a fantastic interview, I speak with Dr. Human Norchasm. Not the easiest name to say, but super smart guy. He's an immunologist, former cardiothoracic surgeon. We're going to go a little bit into his background and history. But he's going to talk today about vaccinations and people who have been previously infected, and what they should do about vaccination. I get this question all the time when I'm at the hospital, from other hospital staff, nurses, physicians, and they'll say, you know, I had COVID, or my kids had COVID. Do they need to get vaccinated? What do you think? And I've always told them, well, you know, the CDC, FDA recommends that you just go ahead and do it. Uh, it's never made a whole lot of sense to me, but yeah, that's what the recommendation is from the experts. And Dr. Norchasm, who has a degree in immunology, his graduate work, super well-versed, I think he lays out a very compelling case for why he's concerned about this policy. But we're going to get into that, and I think you're going to find a great show, and it's going to be really informative, and I'm super excited, and I'm so thankful that he was on. He's been on a number of other shows, like Tucker Carlson. He's written extensively at Medium.com. You'll find him also on Twitter, where he rails against people who are using non-scientific approaches, let's say, to combat the virus. But also he is someone who believes in vaccinations and that's an effective treatment. So it's not like this is someone who is ideologically compelled to think one way or the other. He just says it's time for us to use some science. And really we've lacked scientific discovery, the curiosity, and the skepticism. And I don't know if skepticism is even the right word, but probably just the questioning of things and making sure that we all agree that we're down the right path and the acceptance that other people may have varying beliefs or theories hypotheses and that we just have to accept that you know we don't know for sure there's there's a lot of hubris in those who are our leaders and there's not much humility and I've said way from the start back in last march even that you have to have a, lo, a large level of humility in this whole debate to really understand where we should go what we should do there will be links to all of Dr. Norchasm's stuff that I have access to Tucker Carlson's interview some of his writings in medium his twitter handle and there's other shows that relate to this, about COVID, which we've had quite a few now in The Paradox recently. But that all can be found at theparadox.com slash 128. I encourage you again to share this show with your friends. It is what makes the show so popular and so successful. And I can't thank you enough for really spreading the word and pushing this to your friends and people who you think may find something useful. Not only just about COVID, hopefully you find a lot more about this show useful than COVID, but we talk about other things with the U.S. healthcare delivery system, problems that we face, and people who found solutions to things. So I encourage you to share the show. Go back in the archives if you haven't listened to a bunch. Find a couple that you think might be interesting as far as the titles. Make sure you subscribe to the show, and please, if you have an opportunity, go to a five-star rating on whatever podcast player you use. But first, before we start the interview, a word from our sponsor. Today's sponsor is Michael L. Revis. He is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own occupational disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians. We know he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at doctorpodcastnetworkcom slash MRinsurance or contact him directly at 1-800-817-4522. And now, without further ado, Dr. Human Norchasm and why you shouldn't get vaccinated if you've had COVID-19. Enjoy. Well, hey, I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Human Norchasm. He's a physician, immunologist, and public health advocate in the Philadelphia area, and we're going to talk about COVID-19. So, Dr. Norchasm, thanks so much for joining me.
0: Eric, thank you very much for having me. It's nice to be with you.
1: Uh, We were chatting a little bit beforehand, so I got a little bit of your background. But if you could just talk to the audience, and we're going to talk about COVID-19, immunology, obviously. I've had Dr. David Graham, my friend, who's an infectious disease physician. So we've talked about sort of the, I guess, the evolutionary expectations for coronaviruses and sort of how they behave. But we haven't talked much in this show about... The immunological aspects of things, antibodies vaccination things like that so i'd like to get into that today but if you could sort of talk briefly about your educational background immunology and as a physician and then how you became an advocate for the vaccine positions you have and then we'll kind of get into the specifics
0: sure um eric uh, so thanks again for having me i you know as you said i um uh, I, I'm a physician immunologist. Um, I went to I did my undergrad um, just as, by, by way of just a, an educational um, background. I did my undergrad at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Uh, went to medical school at Penn and was in the combined degree program there and the MD/PhD program under a medical scientist training program grant from the NIH. And after I finished my PhD, which took about MD/PhD, which took about nine years, I did uh, a postdoctoral fellowship in immunology. Uh, for about two years, joined the faculty at Penn before starting my general surgery residency. And, you know, I, I did a general surgery residency at the Hospital of University of Pennsylvania and um, um, afterwards went up to Harvard Medical School's Brigham and Women's to do my cardiovascular fellowship. And that took us to about 2013. Um, and in 2013, my wife, who also was a physician scientist and immunologist, uh, was an anesthesiologist just like yourself and a critical care doc. And she um, she and I went up to Boston from Philadelphia and she was a faculty member at Beth Israel Deaconess um, Harvard Medical School. And in 2013, she was unfortunately uh, diagnosed with a, with a cancer of the uterus. And the story is pretty public. I mean, she basically, uh, this, these cancers of the uterus were being uh, misdiagnosed by gynecologists and a medical device was being used on these, uh, on these tumors to get the Enlarged fibroid tumors out of a small incision, and and in the process, the tumors tumors were being minced, and and if there was cancer in, in these tumors, the cancer would you know spread mechanically in the abdominal cavities of of these women, and uh, stage one contained cancer would almost instantaneously turn into a stage four cancer. This was happening at a rate of one in three fifty to four hundred in women with symptomatic fibroids that were being as- assumed to be benign. So so we really came face-to-face with this concept of minority harm in medicine where, you know, you have a practice pattern that's benefiting the majority or somehow it's economically viable as a service line. And, you know, there's some minority harm being done at some rate of less than 1% uh, and it's being justified and sort of, you know, uh, not nefariously being, being uh, whitewashed, but but just being ignored as, as sort of being less than 1% and therefore justified. But, but in reality when you tally up the numbers, you know, if you do do a procedure a million times a year, And one out of 350 women are are getting their cancers upstaged you're talking about a couple of plane loads uh, full of women getting their cancers upstaged so you can't really ignore it and so that perspective you know of minority harm is what what amy and i sort of brought to to a very big large-scale public health fight and I, i would welcome your audience to i would invite your audience to check it out in the press there was actually a documentary movie made about my wife's public health battle called kicking the hornet's nest which is on amazon it's a very well done documentary movie by a, by a young filmmaker who really it was a labor of love for him and he spent about six years building this movie so i would invite you and your audience to to really check it out because it really crystallizes how it's an example of how minority harm is born in our medical uh, you know establishment and how it's sustained and so that sort of that perspective is sort of what re-emerged for me as as our nation started to engage this pandemic and the vaccine became the dominant pathway to uh, rescue out of this. Uh, I, I think there, there are very many parallels where, you know, um, in the ma- vaccine space, we're approaching this in a one size fits all um, uh, way. And that's where harm lives to minority substance of people. So that's, that's I think, what we uh, want to talk about on, on your show here. So sorry, sorry. sorry exactly. So.
1: No, no, that's perfect. And and this is the, the subject I find very complicated when talking to patients or talking to other physicians. And because I think in general, people, humans, and probably for good reason, are not very good at assessing risk levels uh, as far as percentages. Like, if I say somebody has a 37% risk of happening, mm-hmm. it's really hard for people to grasp what that means, or of 3% or half percent, right? Um, you know, one in 200, one in 300, right? And for you're talking with somebody, it's almost like one in four, 1.25%, right? Is uh, one in 400. And what does that really mean? And so I will, when I try to describe things to people, uh, patients, you know, what's the chance of this happening versus this happening? You know, getting a sore throat with a general anesthetic. Yep. You have to sort of give, people can kind of guess 10% or something, or 25%, but uh, really rare events, one in 10,000, one in a million, you really can't ever put your finger on what that really means. People don't really grasp it. And you definitely see that, I think, with try risk assessment from the public and from the press in this in covid that it's really hard for people to understand what the real risks for certain things are and then it makes it really difficult to make a decision on what's the right thing to do and i always say fundamentally your risk is either zero or it's 100 and unfortunately i can't tell you which one it is right i mean i'd say it's almost for sure zero but it could be the hundred you could be that hundred percent and and so i think that's always important to, to point out that it's really we're just not very good at it well you know,
0: so, so you know, th- that's a very important topic. And, I, you know, I've, uh, I've spent a lot of time over the past eight years uh, since my wife's complication really thinking about it. And I, and I think it comes down to, you know, I, I think that most of us make this error in both in medicine as well as in the public of thinking about risk in terms of numbers where, where you're absolutely right. We, we have absolutely no framework for, for how to assess whether that risk is large or not. For example, with the morselation idea, look, the risk is one in 350. That's true. But if you're doing it on a million people, what's 0.25% of a million people, right? It suddenly you, you start seeing the, you know, the jetliners jet filled with people crashing, right? And if you saw that, I mean, that's the problem with public health is that, is that when, when, when a problem, when a hazard is spread over time and space, you don't necessarily see it. Whereas when a plane crashes and you know, 200 people on board all perish, you actually see what that is. So, for example, like the the 737 Max Boeing jets uh, a couple of years ago, two planes went down and 346 people perished. If you look at the actual mortality risk in those aircraft, it's probably one in millions, right? I mean, one in millions of passenger miles traveled, but because you actually see it, you know, every one of us could viscerally react to a plane crashing, right? But with the morselator, the risk is one in 350 and it's happening like sort of spread out over time and space. And so you can't see it. So really it's, you know, I think, The framework that we think about risk is not sort of adjudicated appropriately at this point in our evolution as a specialty and as a society. And I think what it comes down to in medicine is is two things. It's not really the incidence I think that matters. What matters is two things. Number one is is the idea of medical necessity. So if you're doing, are you doing something to someone? Are you offering them a treatment because it's actually necessary either for their you know physical or psychological well-being? A and B. You know whether you're taking every step possible to avoid avoidable risks right what we, so in other words ca- can you identify who's at risk and can you mitigate and avoid the risk right and the answer to those questions is well it's medically necessary and beneficial a what you're doing and b that you're taking every step possible to identify risks and to mitigate against them or to avoid them then it, it's not really the incidence of the risk that matters. If you haven't done those, you're actually not an ethical space for, for medical practice because, as you know, the principles of medical ethics tell us that beneficence is one of the pr- pillars of medical ethics. You have to be doing something that benefits your patient. You know benefits your patient is benefiting. And B, you have to, you know, you have to be um, doing this with, uh, with, with an idea of, of informed consent um, and, and if you're and if you're not doing those, if you're if you're not um, you know uh, uh, mitigating against uh, against harm, then you're just simply not in ethical space. So so the, it's really not the incidents I think that that we should focus on. It should it should be the avoidability of a, of a uh, risk.
1: Right, okay. and I don't speak Latin, but I know it's a non necessary. right? It's like first, do no harm. And and it's and to your point, it's like if someone comes in in a trauma and they're dying in front of you. Even if you're doing things that are going to cause harm, you don't worry about it because the greater harm, of course, is death. And so that's a situation where you say, "Well, we've done everything we can to prevent worse harm." Yeah, and right. But uh, you know, so well, but, you
0: know, even in that, even in that case, Eric, like I, I can, I can tell you that, like for example. But, and I know that your audience is, is you know partly medical, so I can I can use this example. You know, uh, for example, with aortic injuries, right? Recently, there's this push towards using this device that's minimally invasive called the Reboa, You know, where you where you're you're essentially inflating a balloon inside the inside the aorta to stop bleeding. This has replaced the standard of care, which was to do an X lap or a thoracotomy to gain direct control of the aorta when it's bleeding, right? Now, I mean, here's the thing, no one's ever done any non-inferiority studies on that thing, right? But people are using it extremely, uh, I don't know how it is in your medical center, but they're using it pretty, you know, pretty liberally, you know? We don't really know if the Reboa device for controlling a trauma situation, right, where someone's bleeding to death from an aortic injury, right, is actually more effective or not, right, than the standard approach, which is to do an X XLAP, um, or potentially take the patient to the IR suite. So, you know, these are things that we sort of don't, you know, we're not, you know, our, the economics and the sort of the sexy new approaches are really overriding our clinical ethics. So uh, I think it's, we're really in dangerous territory right now, you know, with the technology. So,
1: yeah. And I think that's a great point. And there's all kinds of things we do that I'm like, I don't really know this is of any benefit to the patient outside of like the, uh, the bottom line of the hospital or the surgeon thinks it's fun or something like that. Right. I mean, um, but we're not going to talk about that. So let which we could obviously go and talk about this for quite a while. So let's talk about vaccinations and um I I'm not sure where to start but I guess I'll just say you know we did an episode here with my friend Dr. Graham in episode 86. That was back in April of 2020. So I mean that's like right in the beginning of this thing and I mean that's where I was actually idle as far as working because they closed on the ORs, the entire state of Michigan shut down uh for the surge that in, outside of Southeast Michigan, never came. Like we were closed down, and our you know tumbleweed going through the hospital. It was people, the ER kept getting food delivered, and they're like, we feel guilty because there's nobody here, right? I mean, it was, it was, and I'm not gonna blame anyone for the situation. It was no one understood it, but even Dr. Graham and I were talking at that time, and it, I felt like at that point we sort of had some feel for where the with how this was going to play out, and it's played out pretty much the way we thought it was going to play out, which is interesting because I never saw it talked about anywhere as far as we move from pandemic to endemic. And you had a, and the one thing we did not anticipate was a vaccine. I think it's, and I think you've stated in some other interviews I've seen that it's pretty much a miraculous va- vaccine. I mean, what has been developed, uh, the speed with which it's developed, in and, and its effectiveness, and it works really great. But the question I get all the time in the OR and from other nurses, and because I have the show, they think I'm an authority on things, which I'm more authority than some others, maybe because I've talked about people. But they ask me the question: All right, I had COVID, my my husband had covid or my kids did or you know do i get vaccinated because there's absolutely a push within the media and certainly within the, the governments the United states state governments but also even with the institutions with the hospitals they can't require it because it's an emergency use authorization but they can change uh, time off requirements like well if you get sick and you have to stay home because of quarantine rules but if you've not been vaccinated we're not gonna pay you but if you've been vaccinated you're gonna get paid but I had, but they may have a documented case of COVID. Well, and like, or when you
0: educational e- environments right now, there, there's a lot of talk about colleges mandating vaccination. Otherwise, kids don't have their educational opportunities. You know, one of the efforts that I've been engaged in is is this idea of convincing universities. You know, that, that they 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 can't mandate this vaccine. And 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 you know, as, as you said, one of one of the main issues is you know, as we've switched from pandemic to endemic, as many m- millions of people are actually infected, does it make does it even make sense to be vaccinating people who are already immune naturally, right? It, it certainly doesn't make sense in, in the setting of any other of the infectious, uh, you know, canonical um, infectious diseases that we think about, right? But, but in, in this case, it seems like there's this massive one-size-fits-all approach to vaccinating the living hell out of everyone irrespective irrespective of not uh, or, uh, of whether or not they're actually um, you know naturally immune and, and I think this is a major error so so you're absolutely right I mean I, you know I uh, about a year ago I wrote an article and, I, and I, I like to write my articles in a way that actually engages the the general public and not just medical professionals especially on medium.com and your audience is welcome to peruse what I've written on medium.com. But, you know, uh, one of the articles that I wrote early in the pandemic was about this idea that we're probably not going to see a vaccine for about a year and a half at least. Right. So you're absolutely right. It was completely, it's it's a miracle of modern medicine, right. That we have these mRNA vaccines they are highly effective. Right. But as we sort of moved into this space where it's like this, now here we have this vaccine and it's going to save the day. Right. It became a one size fits all. you know, for, for our public health officials where it's almost this mindless approach to vaccinating everyone, irrespective of the fact that we're in the middle of an outbreak where many people are already infected recently. I mean, you and I both know that, you know, no self-respecting physician would vaccinate someone who actually has, has an active infection because you know that the vaccine could actually make the condition worse. And particularly in the case of of an inflammatory process, which is what COVID causes. And and then the second thing is, you know, a lot of folks have recovered. and, And by definition, you know, by standard of care in medicine, these folks have serological evidence of immunity. So to take someone who has serological evidence of immunity and give them a vaccine that's essentially, as you said, essentially an experimental sort of technique. I mean, you, you know that you and I both know it takes about 10 years to develop a vaccine, right? We've developed this vaccine in under a year. There clearly are subsets of people missing from the safety and efficacy trials. People, you know, for, for example, pregnant women were missing from these safety trials, right? So here we are uh, just liberally delivering this vaccine to everyone in a setting where millions of people are already infected, are already immune. And And my opinion as an immunologist is, right, that this is an error, This is a public health error because really when you do something unnecessary to to folks as we talked about a couple of minutes ago if you're doing something unnecessary to people meaning if, if a person is immune and you're delivering a vaccine to them to immunize them well they're already immune so they stand no chance of benefiting or very little chance of benefiting right and so really the only thing you're selling that patient or giving that patient is the possibility of harm and and for anyone who to think that this vaccine is perfectly safe well, you know, you're, th- th- that person is delusional because nothing in medicine is perfectly safe, right? I mean, even the tubes that you put down people's throats, you know, like for, for, for to intubate them, these are not, yeah, I mean, they're very effective. And the vast majority of people in, in the hands of good anesthesiologists, these are safe. But you and I both know that there's a harm, a risk of harm associated with this. So you better damn well need to intubate your patient before you intubate them. If you don't need to intubate someone and you intubate them and they get they get hurt, from a complication that's associated with that procedure, then you've actually done harm. You haven't, it's not just an unavoidable complication anymore. It's actually harm because it's not medically necessary. And my contention to the FDA has been fundamentally that if a person is naturally immune, if by every standard measure serologically, we can demonstrate that this person is immune, they have IgG antibodies, they had symptomatic disease, it makes absolutely no sense, zero sense. To vaccinate these people indiscriminately and that's exactly what we're doing yeah
1: i've been stunned and and that was that that was the message early on and i don't know why i mean i'm assuming the the thinking was if we try and if we try and work too slowly uh mm. we're not going to get people vaccinated right like the most important thing right now is to get, push this vaccine get as many people vaccinated to drive down the numbers which absolutely makes sense it's that's totally logical but uh The thought was that if you add an extra step in checking if someone's actually had the virus, you know, and and cleared it, that you would, you know, especially when it was a precious resource. I mean, now it's not so much. Now we have got more supply than we have demand. But initially, it it made no sense, of course, to to vaccinate people who would had it. But it was like there's not even time to try and check that or or it's going to add an extra level of confusion and people are not going to not going to get it or people thought they had it and they're never going to really get checked and so they're going to say well I had it and you know, you know and and, and, that, and,
0: and that's absolutely I mean you know I think fundamentally what it comes down to is that our public health officials and a lot of establishment experts essentially uh, don't seem to believe that we can walk and chew gum at the same time right I mean for God's sake <laughs> if we, we you know we put a rover on Mars right and, and and you know like you know in terms of the sophistication of things that we're capable of I mean this idea that we can't rationally sort of disperse this vaccine and efficiently and actually stick with our with what we know and and the principles of ethics and and science and clinical medicine that we know i think it's it's a fundamental there's a fundamental level of disrespect for everyday americans that's ingrained in it i mean it's i i think it's it's absolutely arrogant on the part of our public health officials and and establishment uh, folks to to assume you know that average Americans don't understand this concept. In fact, what I've found, Eric, is you know I interact a lot with you know everyday folks in, in the in the community. Everyday Americans actually understand this. Like really, it's stunning to me. Oh yeah. That like people like average people who've had you know levels of education that are that are you know uh, on par with the average in this country come up to me and say um, you know I had COVID. You know, do I really need? To... I mean, that what you're saying makes sense. Do I do I really need to get this? And the answer is. What, well, most likely not. And and here, you know, here 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 you can have a prescription and go get your IgG levels drawn at at LabCorp. And if you're positive, just like any other infectious disease, I mean, this virus is there's nothing special about this virus. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a transient virus. It's not like it's not like a herpes virus or a, or an HIV type virus, right? It doesn't incorporate. It's a, it's a transient virus. that comes and goes. Neutralizing antibodies and prime T cells work against it. And so, if you're serologically positive for IgG, that means you have neutralizing antibodies and prime T cells. You know, there's You know there's no it's it's really stunning it's really it really is that that we're doing this
1: so what can you what could you say to people when they ask you all right are you certain that i'm once i've cleared the virus that i'm immune or um how long is it going to last i mean what do you what do you tell people like that because i think that's a that's the next question like well i had it back in last april and it's been almost it's been over a year now am i you know what do you say to people
0: so, so there, there's a very large study that just came out in preprint form from Israel, and and, and it's a, it's actually a credible study from a from a major medical center. Is, I think uh, the numbers were about 4.6 million people, you know, in the group that they retrospectively looked at, and, and what they found, I mean, you can you can look this up. It's I think it's from Tel Aviv University. Um, what they found is that people who have had infections, natural infections and natural immunity, are as well protected as vaccinated people from development of subsequent reinfection. So that's a very large study. And it sort of makes sense from the perspective of, I and mean, we could have predicted this, right? Um, so, so I would, first of all, I would point to that study that says, look, within a three to three to six month period, you know, people who are naturally infected and people who are vaccinated are equally protected. In terms of how long it lasts, look, my, my scientific, you know, um, my, my, my immunological guess as an intelligent guess is that the vast majority of people who've been naturally infected are going to have long-term immunity because, you know, T-cell and plasma cell, uh, you know, maturation and formation is not a random thing. It's not like a on-off switch, like, you know, oh, it's on now that it goes off. So I think the vast majority of these folks are going to have long-term immunity. You know, it's a a pandemic that's a year old. It's a vaccine that's only a couple, you know, so we're going to have to have time to look at it, but, but really on the front end of this thing, this idea that we're going to just like jam this vaccine down everyone's throats and take people's civil liberties away, mandated in colleges and take people's educational opportunities away from them, or or come up with some sort of vaccine passport that that is going to be a disaster for equity and inclusion and and, and civil rights, you know, these ideas are so draconian and so totalitarian in nature and so unethical, you know. It, it's just shocking that that you know any self-respecting physician or public health expert in the United States in, in the year twenty twenty one would go for it. Um, and and I, you know I I think it has to do with groupthink. You know we got to break out of this groupthink thing and 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 really you know level with each other and be and and respect people, respect everyday Americans. You know just because yeah. we have MDs and PhDs doesn't mean we we know better. You know actually the average average Joe knows better, frankly. You know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, I totally agree, and I've talked about vaccine passports too. And how I think it's not, it won't work from a civil liberty standpoint. Obviously, it's t- disaster, but it's also disaster yeah. from, for, at least from a. From a you know used utility purpose, it's also of no utility. And this by the time they actually develop it, it will be long past the part where you need to really get worried and concerned in this country. Yeah, you know, um, Eric,
0: I had a conversation with Tucker Carlson uh, on on Fox Nation a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was a pretty good interview. You know, he interviewed me for for an hour, and we, we just we, we chatted about this. You know, I think it's going to be a, this, these vaccine passports are going to be a disaster and. In equity and inclusion and civil rights, you know, and not, not only that. Look, you know, here's the thing: we we can't even get our voting, um, you know, paperwork straight in this country, right? Do <laughs> you, you think? I mean, like, who do you, who do you actually think is gonna is gonna suffer disproportionately from not being able to get these vaccine passports or immunity passports? It's gonna be the same people who have disadvantages in terms of their voting rights, right? So I'm I'm not understanding how people who are like yelling and screaming about voting rights. Are, are suddenly now all for this passport you know it's just it just doesn't make any sense I mean I you know really we, we got to turn on our brains a little bit here you know
1: do you think the people at the FDA uh, and CDC do they understand immunity I mean I like what you say it makes sense like that seems to be the General understanding. You've had chickenpox. You don't vaccinate the kid for chickenpox. Like once, uh, when the f- vaccine first came out, they didn't. You know that was one of the questions, right? Like if you had it, included it. Now we don't know how long the vaccine is effective for. We don't know how long. Well, we am pretty sure that lifetime immunity is pretty much lifetime immunity. I think there's the very rare person who gets it later in life, but I think we know that's super rare. Do they just not understand that? Do they or do they? Is it willful ignorance? I mean, I, I'm trying to understand what you think. You know, get in their brains. I mean, what do you what do you think is that work here, or do they think public officials want to understand it? The public won't understand it, so we're just gonna make it s- super dumb and simple, and then yeah. that's just it's, how we're gonna push it McDon-
0: I think I think part of it is a McDonald's approach, but I do think there's a systemic problem going on in in um, at the FDA, and that is that you know the the, the entire sort of narrative is being crafted by primarily by virologists actually and and these are these are essentially Fauci's Dr. Fauci's crowd and 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 you know I think uh, I have a lot of respect for Dr. Fauci I mean I worked at the NIH in Bob Gallo's lab back in the early 90s when Dr. Fauci was sort of at the peak of his his rise as as our top infectious disease um specialist and and you know they they learned a lot of lessons from the HIV pandemic obviously but but you know I uh, I think what's happening is that is that there's sort of a um it's almost like this um you know, um, non diverse scientific approach to this virus that's being guided primarily by virologists who sort of grew up in the HIV era, right? And HIV is a fundamentally different virus than, than, than. Uh, SARS-CoV-2. SARS-CoV-2 is a transient virus. HIV incorporates itself into your genome and is there forever, right? In, in, when, when it infects you, right? So, so, they're fundamentally different things, and so really the approach that they took to to uh, okay, a uh, you know anti-replication agents and b vaccines and neutralizing agents really came from that sort of mindset. So it's not, there's nothing nefarious going on, but, but I do think that the the folks who are working on this are not cellular immunologists, like like Dr. Fauci. Does not think about inflammatory process the same way I would, or the same way someone like Dr. Carl, Professor Carl June at Penn, would, right? Like the you know the activation dynamics of T cells and macrophages, right? And so I think that there's a fundamental sort of lopsided approach to this virus, where where all eggs have been put in one basket with the vaccine, and and really you know what we've what we've dominantly ignored is the fact that this COVID nineteen disease is actually an inflammatory disease. You know, it, you, know, w- you know, it's not a surprise. The only therapy that we have for COVID-19 disease is dexamethasone, right? <laughs> and that's an anti-inflammatory drug. Where did it come from? It didn't come from the United States. It came from the UK, right? And, and, and the reason for that is because we've dominantly sort of focused on the vaccine effort and on these like fe- sexy newfangled drugs that are neutralizing agents like the Regeneron antibodies. And a lot of it is just sort of plugged into money interests. And so therefore what you get is a collusion between money interests and a scientific approach that's just lopsided because Dr. Fauci is a virologist, you know? So I think we have a, mo- a scientific monarchy in place, right? That's guiding our nas- nation's narrative, right? And I think in, in America, you know, you can't have a monarchy, right? So you have to bring in other people who have different ideas. And, and you know, this vaccine issue is, is exactly that. That, that. I think that's why we have a problem with the vaccine right now.
1: Yeah. So. Well, I, it's been no surprise for for me. I've i thought Fauci has done a really terrible job from the start of this uh, pandemic and messaging and explaining things. And I think just overall, I don't know. I think just treating people as idiots and uh, whether they're physicians or the American public, and uh, it it shows and it shows well how they've lost so much institutional support from most Amer lots of Americans. I mean, they're the ones. <clears throat> excuse me, they're the ones who are hundred percent in favor. And then they're ones who just don't believe anything they say at this point point. and i don't know you can get that public trust back for a generation but
0: I, I think the way you get public trust back is by you know being humble and decent and actually addressing people's concerns you know and and you know like I, one of the, one of the things that i learned from the whole issue of uh that my wife struggled with eric is was that you know everyday people understood far more profoundly that there's a serious problem and all kinds of people with md's and phd's and and uh, academic regalia i mean i think that there's this level of hubris that's been brewing in our system you know in our uh, in our establishment in our arena and, and and in our academic institutions that's that simply basically looks at everyday americans and says we know better than you do and and i'm not saying that science doesn't reveal things that are not revealed to the average person you know i'm not saying that you know expertise don't mean anything they they clearly do you know you don't want to put like someone who's you know uh, a doorman you know or or like a receptionist in a cardiac surgical operating room and say okay go ahead and do the cabbage right you can't do that right but but you know the the, the fundamental facts are that that, that there is a, a layer uh, a level at which the public actually do have an understanding and 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 should be given the 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 tools that they need to understand what they're dealing with, and if you just sort of do this stick and carrot thing, I mean, I, I go on CNN and there's this lady on there. She's a public health expert, so-called. You know, I, I guess her name is Dr. Wen or something. You know, she she uh, she talks about a stick and carrot approach, to taking Americans' freedoms away from them or giving them freedom if they get the vaccine, right? Right. Well, that's the most stupid thing I've ever heard. It's not just stupid; it's totalitarian and it's dangerous, right? Because it fundamentally disrespects the everyday American. which which we cannot have as an orientation, as a profession, right? I mean, as a profession, as as a healing profession, one of our tenets of operation is patient autonomy, which essentially means that you, you respect the patient's intelligence and understanding and you can't force anything on anyone, right? So we've lost that humility, right? We're willing to override the principle of beneficence in medical ethics by vaccinating people who are already immune. We're willing to override the principle of patient autonomy right? Which basically means we respect the patient's decision over their own body, right? And if we're willing to do that, that means we're arrogant, right? And if Dr. Fauci is willing to let that happen, that means he's arrogant, right? And I, listen, I have all due respect for Dr. Fauci. I understand his pedigree and everything, right? Um, but I, I just think it's being terribly mishandled and, and, and and you know, it's doing harm. It's doing harm.
1: And now we're looking, so I mean, we've kind of talked about civilians, but another big population, I don't know how big it is, but I think it's a couple million you look at service members in the U.S. military, and they have, I don't know, I imagine they have much less control over what happens to them, right? And is this, is this being pushed on them as well? Because I know a lot of them have, are young. They're probably either, A, not worried about the virus, which I think is, I don't know. I mean, again, that's up to up to each individual to sort of decide what their concern level is. But yeah. um, but also, a lot of them have probably had it, especially yeah. in their quarters. So i they're kind of at risk, right, from just getting this... Uh, A vaccination that will provide no benefit. And yes, the harm is incredibly small, as we stated before. But again, it's either zero or 100. Right. So uh, what do you think?
0: Yeah, so, so, so I, uh, I'm actually, as, as you're speaking, I'm, I'm pulling up um, an article that I posted on Facebook. Uh, so, so, um, I wrote a letter to President Biden about the service members because, because the Department of Defense policy is that everyone should get vaccinated at this point, right? And they're offering the vaccine to all the troops, right? And as you said, many of them are actually already infected. So there was there was actually an article. You know, you can you can pull up my letter to to President Biden. You know, it's it's several thousand people have read it at this point. But basically, the point is this: is if your if your service members are Um, uh, you know, uh, recently infected or immune. These are folks who can't benefit and will only get harmed. So I I just, uh, I'm just pulling this up. It's in the Military Times. The title of it is 25th service member dies of COVID-19 as White House considers mandatory vaccines, right? So this this guy, this gentleman's name was Senior Chief Fire Controlman Michael Wilson. He's 45 years old. He's assigned to the Information Warfare Training Command, Virginia Beach, Virginia, died of a coronavirus-related complication after being fully vaccinated okay so so you know i think you know we can say these are true true and unrelated right we can say okay you know this this uh uh you know senior chief um uh, wilson died from covid and that's what they're saying like uh, that orthopod uh dr j barton williams of memphis tennessee you know he'd had an asymptomatic infection got his his two pfizer vaccines and he burned up in an icu and died from a hyperinflammatory reaction and FDA and CDC are saying that's true, true, and unrelated. So yes, true, he had the asymptomatic infection. True, he got the vaccine. And true, he died. But these are unrelated events, right? Uh, I mean, we can do that, right? But, but you know, I, I think that's not the um, sort of ethical and scientifically and clinically sound way to go. These are all sentinel events, right? And so, yes, in the military right now, what we're doing is we have a group of folks who are committed to nation and duty. And they will do whatever the government tells them to. And many of them are actually um, recently infected or are currently immune. And so if the United States government policy, if the White House comes in and says, no, go ahead, we're going to vaccinate all you guys with a blanket carte blanche, right? And one out of however many of them get harmed because of this unnecessary treatment, just on the, on the, on the, on the, you know, first floor of this argument, right? Is the medical necessity argument, right? Forget about any unique vaccine related complications just on the, on the, on the, on the ground floor, we have medical necessity. If you're immune and you don't need the vaccine, you get the vaccine and you get harmed. That's harm. So you're talking yeah. about service members who are in harm's way, and our United States government and our White House, having been warned, is ignoring this idea. This is, uh, I mean, to me, it's it's almost like a you know Biden's Benghazi. You know, really, I mean, it's like you can't you can't ignore this, right? You can't you can't ignore it because you don't know or you don't think it's a problem. You know. There, there, there are enough people, very distinguished people, people like Dr. Peter McCullough. Uh, he's a full professor at, uh, at Baylor. You know, he's been sounding the alarm similarly. He was, uh, he was on Fox News, on Laura Ingram, and on Tucker again. And, you know, it's unfortunate that these folks are the only ones listening, but, but that's who, who's listening. And, and Dr. McCullough, who's a distinguished professor of medicine and cardiology, is stating exactly the same thing. So people are warning the administration and the CDC and the FDA. They're just not listening. You know, they just want to vaccinate everyone, you know, out the wazoo, if you will. You know, and that's not the way to do it. So. Yeah,
1: and I think it's probably important to point out right now, now that we're halfway through the interview, <laughs> is that that uh, I believe you are vaccinated. I'm f- vaccinated. I never had the My family has my my daughter, who's uh, a freshman. Mm-hmm. I'll do that in air quotes because she's actually been home the whole time because of this dumb virus and just a dumb year, and that we'll get into that. But uh, she never had COVID, but so she's getting the vaccine, and I think probably. I would advocate people get vaccinated. I mean, it, I think it's your choice, but I think it's, I mean, I always say it's like getting vaccinated for the flu. I get vaccinated for the flu not because I'm worried about causing a global pandemic of flu spreading throughout my community. And maybe on some level, I should care about that more. But I do it because I really don't want to get the flu because it really sucks and you're sick for a long time and you can't work and you feel miserable. And that's sort of my same thought with COVID, although I realize lots of people are asymptomatic or pretty much totally fine. I mean, is that your? I mean, that's your position, right? We're not. You know, we're no, Eric, saying that COVID's not real, right?
0: You know, uh, uh, Eric, I have to actually apologize to you. I I wanted to be very emphatic on the fr- at the beginning of this interview, and I and I forgot to do this, and I, and I do this with every interview I do. So you know, I've been vaccinated. I got the Moderna vaccine, right? And and I and I and I truly um, understand and know the power and efficacy of these vaccines, uh, not not only in, as an immunologist, but you know, as, as someone who actually has received the vaccine and measured my own IgG levels, I measured my IgG levels before the vaccine, I had zero, I measured it after the vaccine, and I, and my antibody levels for spike protein are off the charts. So I, I believe that the, these vaccines are highly effective. And and to your point, um, in my own family, I have six children, uh, my son who was a freshman at University of Chicago, he he had COVID back in November, he was sick for 10 days, you know, he came home this past spring and I, I measured his antibodies uh, and he's got a whopping amount of antibody. He's, he's immune. His sister, who's 18 and is going to college next year, we measured her antibodies and she doesn't have antibodies. Right. So she got vaccinated. But you know what? My son, Joseph, there's no way in hell he's going to get uh, the vaccine. And, and, you know, the University of Chicago can go ahead and, you know, try to mandate it. And what they'll get stuck with is a federal lawsuit you know so and and, and you know we've all, i've already gone to the administration and with all due respect i mean I, I really it's a fantastic university it's one of the top universities in the country but if they can't exercise good judgment you know they've received all the warnings they've received the lawyer letters and all they need to do is mandate this vaccine and they'll end up with a federal lawsuit you know and if that's how we have to do it that's how we'll do it but you know the preferable way is right the preferable way is that we people of intelligence and ethical standing and clinical standing and reason get together and say okay look we can walk and chew gum at the same time it's not a not a big deal we put a man on mars or, or a rover on mars and a man on on the moon we can exercise medical necessity here we can adjudicate whether vaccination is medically necessary if you have if you have like 40 percent of your frontline healthcare workers having had covid and are immune to this these people should not be exposed to the risk of harm by an added by an unnecessary medical treatment. This is this is a no-brainer, Eric. This is not, yeah. this is not yeah. something we should be that we should we shouldn't be this this shouldn't be subject to controversy by Dr. Fauci or by Dr. Wen or by Dr. Wolinsky. I mean, these these folks are are really doing a disservice not only to the people who could get potentially harmed, but also by eroding trust in government and by eroding some of the core principles of our profession.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's certainly not difficult for a university. They can say, show proof of vaccination or proof of infection or serology. And I mean, they do that for all sorts of other things. They don't have to be involved in the process, right? Just have some sort of, I don't know, whatever they use for portals now. It's all online. And I, I do appreciate the fact that we are so nerdy that you actually checked your IgG levels and of your kids. I
0: mean, I had less than 0.8 units per, decil- per, per milliliter uh, in my blood before the vaccination, which is the baseline threshold for the lab core test. And after my second Moderna shot, I had greater than 250 units per ml, which is the upper limit of detection. So, yes, I did.
1: <laughs> so, so now we're going to go to the nether. Uh, but there's one other subject I want to talk about. Is now this week I think they're gonna start rolling out vaccinations for children down to the age of, six, of twelve, and then at some point it'll be kids down to probably age of two. I think that's where the trials are, and they that may be happening in the fall. Do you have any sort of sense of what people should do as far as parents? Because parents are definitely more they're more concerned because they're it's it's one thing it's just your life, but when you're you're making decisions for another, I mean, obviously it's different, right? You, you're more Cautious, and they're more hesitant with vaccines. What's your recommendation for down to age twelve? I mean, is it's just like a figure out what the risk for COVID is versus the risk of the vaccine? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Do you think they do more antibody tests or what sort of other things?
0: So, so you know, for my own kids, I have I have kids uh, ranging from eight to nineteen, and um, I think my my age cutoff, my own age cutoff for my kids is probably sixteen. So, my sixteen year old is probably going to get vaccinated. Um, but below sixteen, I think, you know, uh, and, and the reason is that the sixteen-year-old moves around a lot. You know, there's it's a less controlled sort of, you know, in terms of movement and susceptibility to acquiring the infection. But you know, look, I, I think the risk currently for the variants that are out there, um, you know, the risk to children is astronomically low, right? And so, and so, it's probably true that the risk from the vaccine itself may be high, either on par or maybe a little even a little higher for for the kids. So I, I don't really I don't really see any justification currently for giving the vaccine to the kids, but, but to the kids below the age of 12, or below the age of 16, rather. But, but I, um, you know, I, I do think that one concern I have, and I think this is something that's bearing out in places like India, is that as more and more people, including kids, get naturally infected, the probability of a variant emerging that might actually be more harmful uh, or more virulent increases right and, and you know like I I, the, I guess the thought experiment that I would ask you and your audience to do is imagine if SARS-CoV-2 were similar to the 1918 flu where kids were, were actually being affected too you know I think we'd be having a completely different conversation right the fact that this virus is actually low virulency right and it affects people who are older and more susceptible changes the calculus a little bit now that's not to say that somewhere down the line a variant couldn't evolve that could affect kids. I mean, I I, I th- I've written about this, and I think it's just dumb luck that that's not the case, right? I mean, it's like th- there's going to be a sequence and a variation in in the the protein structures that could make it more virulent in kids and more damaging. And so, the the only rationale I would see for vaccinating kids is if if it, if that actually is a tangible thing, right? That that if it, it, literally if infect more people and you increase the burden of mutation in the population globally. That you could actually get to a point where kids could be affected. In that case, uh, I would say that it's justified to vaccinate kids. But I don't think we have any evidence of that right now. It's going to be a hard sell to a lot of parents. And and for myself, like I said, I I would basically stick with 16 as my cutoff. Um, and that's purely based on the fact that my 16 year old is getting in her car and driving around to her friend's house and here and there, and so she's just more susceptible to catching it than my 12 year old. So,
1: yeah, yeah, that'll be a, a challenging question. And and I feel like the a lot of the arguments right now are. It, you're vaccinating for population safety versus actual the safety for the child. And, and I don't think that's really ever been the focus of a vaccine. Like a vaccine is a very personal decision and a personal uh, choice. And that I, know, I do recognize that from a population standpoint, you need to reach in certain vac- vaccination rates or immunity rates in order to prevent the spread of disease and, and uh, viruses. But that's sort of like a secondary sort of effect of protecting yourself with a vaccine.
0: You know, I, I mean, I, I do think that there's the, the element of protecting yourself is definitely the case. I mean, you know, like I have antibodies and I'm protected, so i It's sort of this sort of self-serving objective, but I also do think that there is sort of a duty and patriotic duty, and I and I and I use that knowing full well that a lot of people will find it distasteful. But but you know, I uh, I, I mean, I do think that this idea that look if. If I'm infected most likely I'll clear it by myself or maybe I want to take a drug but if I take that infection and give it to someone who's vulnerable and and bring about that person's demise then I haven't I've done something that's not publicly responsible I haven't done my civic duty now now I mean that that argument I think does hold right I wouldn't you know based on the based on just simply a probability that that might happen I wouldn't take someone's civil liberties away from them to shove it down their throat that they should get vaccinated right it's sort of like it's sort of like yes that's possible that is an argument and you can pose it to people but you still can't use it as justification to force or coerce people to get it right and so and so yes i do believe that it's my civic duty to get vaccinated if i need to get vaccinated if i'm not immune because if i catch this thing and i give it to my next door neighbor's 80 year old father right and he dies because of it, then that's on me right um so for me that that is actually sort of an element of civic duty and it, do, it does play into you know my, my sense of responsibility to my community and whether my kids should get vaccinated. But, but I don't, that's sort of my philosophical precept. It's not, it may not be yours or it may not be, you know, Joe Smith's. And in a pluralistic society, we are duty bound also fundamentally to respect other people's sort of approaches and ways of doing things. Right. So I can't, I can't say that Joe Smith for sure is going to hurt somebody. There's a probability that he or she might, but I can't just, I can't take civil liberties away from him based on a probability. yeah
1: it it is a persuasive argument right it's it's a it's a you know this is another reason to do it but it may not persuade you as an individual that you feel compelled that that benefit outweighs the risk to from whatever you perceive it as and as parents as I mentioned in the last episode which has not yet been released uh, we are we are left in charge of our children with imperfect information and uh, we're and no knowledge of the future and so that's where we are so I want to talk, shift gears a little bit, and this is a question I have. Now that I've got immunology, I absolutely have to ask this question because I hear this all the time. I'm not entirely convinced. When you look at flu rates in the country, um, they've, and not even this country, the entire world, the the flu has has just disappeared. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to most people about regular upper respiratory infections, for probably you know adenovirus, rhinovirus, and the other coronavirus variants, uh, people are you know don't not getting sick, and so. What do you think the explanation is for the flu just completely disappearing? Because I know there are conspiracy theorists who say well it's because it's, you know, the same thing or whatever. I mean, that's not even possibly remotely true. <laughs> but but clearly there's just no flu. And uh, is it because the of all the mitigation measures we're using with schools and things like that? Because if that's the case, it's not working for COVID. I just well, you know I'm kind of curious.
0: I think that's that's basically what it is. So the difference between the SARS-CoV-2 and the flu and some of the other endemic viruses is the size of the of the the magnitude of the of the problem, if you will, right? So so like so so in other words, you know, yes, the mitigation measures have actually served to tamp down SARS-CoV-2 as well. There's no question, if you if you lock down, like China did, right? That you can you can reduce down the incidence of SARS-CoV-2 to zero, right? And so those, those same mitigation measures will work on on flu and adenovirus and all those other. Uh, Infectious diseases. It's just that the the magnitude of those problems is so much smaller normally that when you actually come down and you you, with this iron fist and you just like lock everything down, those things are those diseases are much more susceptible to disappearing than the big mushroom that's grown around us, which is SARS-CoV-2. So I think it's just. I think basically, um, I'm trying to think of a good analogy for that. Thanks for raising this because, you know, it actually is, is making my wheels turn in terms of what the analogy would be. But I, I just think it's, it's sort of a, the pandemic virus is a much bigger and more frequent infectious disease, infectious organism in the world right now compared to flu and adenovirus. And so when you come down and you put down this iron sort of fist down and, and just like do a blanket, you know, shutdowns and, and uh, mitigation measures. The smaller problems are going to disappear much more quickly because they're they're smaller, and so what we're seeing is that those diseases have disappeared uh, because they're subject to the same mitigation force that SARS-CoV-2 It's just that SARS-CoV-2 is so much bigger that it's just sort of it's, it's staying around. So
1: do you do you think it's a a lot related to the fact that at any one time people have immunity to those various viruses, and so the yeah. the the available fuel for these viruses is much smaller to begin with, whereas COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, everybody sort of like initially was a, you know, potential target.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's the difference between an endemic and a pandemic uh, virus, right? I mean, a pandemic virus is, it, it, it takes off like a wildfire because more people are susceptible to it, right? Whereas an endemic virus, number one, you know, the vast majority of the world's population is is sort of immune to it, and so, and so really it's happening at a relatively low frequency compared to SARS-CoV-2. So you have a, you have a massive load of of virus in the form of SARS-CoV-2, and you have a very, very small load of virus relatively uh, with respect to flu and adenovirus, and and all of these are basically spreading in the same, with the same mechanism. So movement, travel, you know, uh, contact, those are the, the, that's how these viruses spread. So when you you limit that significantly, as we have around the world, what you get is the smaller problem disappearing almost, whereas the bigger problem still sticks around.
1: Yeah. And that makes sense because you, yeah, totally. Uh, and then finally, when Dave Graham and I talk about the the evolution of the coronavirus, so he looks at he says, well, let's look at a previous virus that, coronavirus that came to, OC43 is I think the most recent one that jumped from, they would believe cows to humans, late 1800s maybe, you know, I was not entirely sure, but you kind of read some reports and news because it's amazing how things have changed in only 130 years <laughs> as far as understanding of things. And you wonder what sort of people's response would be Back then, if they had all the technology we have and the understanding of immunology and whatever. But, um, and that uh, what's going to happen to this coronavirus, it will become endemic. It clearly is already on the way. It's it's all over the world. We're going to have it around forever. There are already animal reservoirs, it sounds like, in mice and mink and probably some other mammals will be found to have. So, unless we euthanize all the mink and mice, we'll, (laughs) we'll always have exposure.
0: Um, I think the danish did right didn't the danish go through a phase where like they they wiped out I think the, the belgians i think the
1: belgians Belgium, but yeah. well somewhere one of those guys out in europe
0: Northern, one of those nordic countries yeah
1: <laughs> i shouldn't say that because my wife's danish so i should be oh. careful <laughs> uh but when it comes to uh subsequent infection, so when you look at other when you look at infections oc43 it looks like you can get oc43 infections throughout your life that you will have a I don't want to say temporary immunity, but maybe that's probably the best way of saying that you have your immune for a while and then you can get it, but you never get probably as sick and you're probably it just becomes upper respiratory infection and it doesn't cause massive inflammations like you get from this sort of novel SARS-CoV-2. Dave Dave's expectation is that this will very much follow the same same pathway, in in which meaning that once you've had it, you've got some T cell immunity, you've got some blatant immunity that you may lose your antibodies because coronaviruses seem to be pretty good at evading the immune system over time but that subsequent infections will be less severe and you'll be, that'll be basically a common cold at some point. And especially kids today, by the time they're in our age, this will be no big deal. It'll be circulating like normal and we won't even pay any attention to it. Do you think that's a, the, do you think that's a reasonable expectation? Because you read the New York times and they're like, we're going to need booster shots every three years because people are going to lose their antibodies. And we're gonna have to deal with this for the rest of our lives that, you know, for the foreseeable future. That seems less likely to me as a, Possible scenario. What do you think?
0: Um, So, it's it's a it's a really good question. You know, I think obviously your 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 colleague or your friend's uh, perspective is sort of the optimistic perspective, right? And um, you know, I I don't I don't sort of view it from the perspective of sort of a teleological. A sort of approach to the question, which could either be optimistically teleological or pessimistically teleological. And when I say teleological, I mean, like you, you start with the premise that it's its going to be a disaster, or you start with the premise that it's going to be f- just fine, no problem, right? I think that the reality is that billions of people are naturally infected, and there are mutations happening randomly in, in every individual who's infected. And the, the, the sort of variants are coming not from out of thin air, they're coming out of naturally infected people who's who are mutating the the genetic code of the coronavirus and so and so what's going to happen is as, as we develop sort of a, a sort of global immunity if you will to this virus, there's also going to be a repertoire of viruses of variants that are going to be out there now, right And so some of them are going to be more or less virulent, you know some of them you know and so I think I think it's going to be a big problem potentially to dig out of, and it really is going to be a random process right but where you have a repertoire of coronaviruses out there now because we were exposed to this pandemic and and the scope of it is going to be much worse than i think than the flu pandemic because in the 1918 flu we weren't as mobile so not as many of the world's population were as rapidly um sort of infected with the with the 1918 flu so so I think I think that there is concern that some of these random mutations will lead to variants that could be potentially more destructive. So I, I do think there's an argument for limiting the number of people who get naturally infected, either through vaccination or through lockdowns. Um, I, I do think that could be a problem, I, whether it'll be an, an OK problem, like your friend thinks, or whether it'll be like a disaster, like some other people a doom, a doom, I, I It's just I don't think we can we shouldn't adjudicate it that way. We should say, look, you know, what's happening right now. I don't know if you've uh, studied Stephen Jay Gould's work in evolutionary biology, but he, he introduced this concept of punctuated equilibrium. And what punctuated equilibrium is, is when, 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 um, during the course of evolution, you have these periods of equilibrium where selective forces are working on different variants, right. Of, of whatever. Right. And those selective forces in the environment guide what, will be, right? And then there are these periods of punctuation where variants are either expanding or contracting rapidly because of some cataclysmic thing like a pandemic, right? So right now we're at a period of punctuation with respect to this virus where, where, where the natural infections are generating a lot of variants, right? And I do think that there's an argument actually for limiting those natural infections, um, either be it through the vaccine, or through sort of social cultural measures, right? The Chinese have obviously been successful at using their state machinery to, to block natural infection and transmission. We can't do that in Western democracies because of our structure, we just can't do it, right? So so I think our solution is the vaccine, right? But so so I'm, I'm a big advocate for using this vaccine to limit natural infection, really. I mean, I, I think we should deploy this vaccine as efficiently, as quickly as possible on as many people as possible to limit the uh rate of natural infection uh i just think we can do it rationally you know and safely anyway,
1: yeah so yeah it's interesting looking at what australia and new zealand who have an approach that is i think similar in some ways to china i mean they've sort of like walled off their country i mean i guess it's the benefit of being an island i suppose you can do yeah. do what you want um well you know the Israelis,
0: I mean, uh, eric the israelis you know, uh, the, the reason why they were able to do that study that I pointed to, which showed that naturally immune people and, and the vaccine infected people are equally protected. The reason why they could do that study, right, is because in Israel, they were very, you know, they're, they're very much on top of it. They screened everyone, and they literally, their policy, their public health policy was they weren't vaccinating people who uh, were infected. And that's how they could tell that there's a look here, here we have this pile of people we didn't vaccinate and were naturally infected. And here's this pile of people we vaccinated because they weren't infected. And they're basically the same. They're behaving the same in terms of susceptibility. So they actually use that intelligent sort of approach. And we can too. I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't.
1: Uh, I I think there's people who think there's a benefit to getting uh, further exposures to the virus or any sort of viral infection. Like once you've been immunized, say, say measles, that you get exposed to measles occasionally throughout your lifetime and that it boosts your immune system and you have a better, a stronger immunity to that and the population. Do you think that's the same in COVID? And if so you know, do you think that would be the argument to say, well, that's why I think I had COVID a year ago. I should still get the vaccine, right? That's a
0: reasonable argument. I mean, look look from an immunological perspective. You know, I think the idea of getting boosters is, is actually scientifically based, right? So you can actually you know you can booster now some some uh, viruses as you know like the chickenpox virus once you get chickenpox you have lifetime immunity and we know that based on a vast clinical experience for many many years right we don't know where SARS-CoV-2 is going to fall in that so it is possible that you know you would you would get a vaccine and, and I actually I, you know I don't mind like if, if like for example my son who had covid in november let's say next measure measures antibodies and they have dropped down I don't mind if he gets a booster shot you know i you know i i think it's rational you know you just sort of boost that Immunity and make sure make sure you make sure it sticks. So because because we don't know, you know how long it's going to last. If to guess, I would say that in the majority of people who have natural infections, it's going to last for quite some time. Okay, but but that's just a guess, right? Yeah, um, right.
1: Well, we're all, and that, that's the problem. People ask you, and you can't you can't know because you don't have the benefit of time. Right? Yeah. We, we, well, well, we're well, all a year well, into this.
0: What you can say is, look, you know, I, you know, what, what you can say is, I will measure my antibody titers. And when my antibody titers start to drop by more than say 25%, I'll start thinking about getting the booster. Yeah. You know, it's, it's sort of a rational empiric thing to do. And I think it's based on clinical science and based on scientific experience. And, and I think that it's it's rational. I mean, we do that all the time. We use our clinical judgment, right? to to In, in the face of uncertainty to, to make decisions, right? Not, you know, not everything is the sort of Atul Gawande checklist manifesto bullshit. Right. It's like, you, you know, you, you, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't work at McDonald's. Right. We have we have clinical experience. We have judgment. Right. And those are intangible. And I can tell you, like, I, I've, I've interacted with surgeons who are very sort of like algorithmic, like robots and people who are I'm sure you have to. You've seen anesthesiologists oh, yeah. who have this gut feeling about something. And that gut feeling always, always saves the day to the guy who's just following the checklist manifesto like a robot, right? And is killing people left and right, you know? So, so I think there's room here in the face of uncertainty for judgment, clinical wisdom, scientific extrapolation and prognostication. And this idea that we overrule and overwrite anyone who says, oh, there's there's a prognosticated problem here. Like, I, I can't tell you, there's, there's this guy, um, he's a surgeon at Wayne State, uh, David Gorski. You know, he got on my case early on in this whole thing about why are you prognosticating gloom and doom about the vaccine, right? And, and literally, he, he unleashed this group of, like, lay people who are his sort of his, you know, um, his, uh, Twitter mob. <laughs> minions, I guess, right? To just literally throw eggs, right? I mean, literally, it went all the way to the point where someone had taken a post and sent it to the state medical board, you know, complained that my license should be re It's like, well, okay, so, so first of all, that's, like, bully tactics, right? You 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 can't do that. That's not appropriate, right? It's like you know. I'm not saying people shouldn't get vaccinated. I'm saying that we have some safety concerns here, right? And but 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 this idea that that any sort of skepticism or dissent gets quashed squashed in this in our in this whole discourse. That that if you deviate from the institutional and public health narrative, somehow you're either an anti-vaxxer or you're or you're you have some nefarious intent, you know, for for our national security. Is, is so detrimental to, to everything that we represent. I mean, I, you know, I'll tell you one other anecdote and then I don't wanna to take too much of your time, but, but you know, I, I, when I first published my letter to Pfizer, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who is, has been labeled as this pariah of, of the of, uh, you know, anti-vaccine sort of uh, monstrosity, right? Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth when you talk to the guy, he's completely reasonable and rational and, and, and a decent human being. You know, he, his publication picked my, you know, t- took up my uh, letter from, to, to Pfizer and to FDA and published it in the Defender. The Defender is, you know, the Children's Health Defense's publication. I had no problem with that. You know, I put this thing in the public domain. I have no problem. Anyone could pick it and read it and, and amplify it. I'm happy about that. And I'm happy about the discourse. Then this guy Gorski, you know, at Wayne State goes in and activates his whole machinery, trying to label me as an anti-vaxxer, which, you know, that's not the way it works. You know, the, the, the way it works in our country is that we engage in discourse and we operate based on ethics and decency and we're not bullies. You know, we don't bully each other around. You know, crowds don't go beating up on individuals. We don't use our state machinery to beat someone up and take away their livelihood. You know, none of that, you know. So anyway, that's where we are. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, I wish that was all entirely true. <laughs> but I definitely the last couple of years have made me question some things as far as what I thought were. I, I think we talked about it before show. I think just the intellectual curiosity and scientific curiosity seems to be lacking in some ways, which is a little worrisome. But I think it's, you know, I think these things will work themselves out. I also think like the vaccine passports, I think the, uh, this recognition that once you've been infected, you have to get vaccinated. I think you'll you'll soon see an end to those arguments in the next month or two. That's, just, that's maybe that's optimistic. But I tend to think that people who are, uh, well... We're helpful. We're helped in this country because we have a federal system. We have various states doing their own things that fight the federal government. And so you can get different narratives and different examples of things that work and don't work. And I think that helps us in this country, at least with a debate that you can say, well, you know, you're doing this. It doesn't seem to be helping or, you know. And so I think we're seeing that. And I think we'll get the same thing when it comes to these other measures. That's my hope.
0: <laughs> but, I hope so. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. And you know, there's, there's a lot of reason to hope. And I, I actually think that most of it centers on the common sense of the American people. I, yeah. I, you know, And again, I mean, I think it's very easy as experts and sort of people with specialized, um, you know, titles and, and expertise to undermine the common sense of, of this democracy. But I think in the end, it's going to actually it's going to steer things. It's not going to look it doesn't look pretty. Democracy in America doesn't look pretty. But, but I think ultimately it sort of, uh, figures out the common denominator and actually makes the right decision. So,
1: yeah, that's, that's my hope as well. Well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I really appreciate the conversation. Where's a good place for people to find your stuff. It all be linked at the paradox.com. So people can find stuff there, but where's a good place. I mean, obviously Twitter, that's where I found you, but yeah. you're you right at medium and other places.
0: Yeah, so Eric, I'm not a very sophisticated social media guy. I mean, I, I do use Twitter, you know, and uh, and I find it pretty pretty useful and 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 good for discourse. I, I'm also on Facebook, and everything on my Facebook uh, is um, you know public, and and uh, you can just put my name in. And I, I write on Medium.com, so it's my last name, Norchashm, N-O-O-R-C-H-A-S-H-M. dot Medium.com, and uh, my my Twitter link is at Norchash N-O-O-R-C-H-A-S-H-M. So, you know, I, I welcome, you know, anyone in the public to actually go on there and, and sort of throw eggs at me or not, you know, or, or send me some love. <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. It's the way you go. <laughs> so it's uh. It well, Dr.
1: Norchasm, thank you so much for being on The Paradox. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks very much, Eric. It's nice being here.
1: Thanks again to Dr. Human Norchasm for the great show and discussion about vaccinations and immunity. But before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance and Consultants where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit their unique situation. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com slash MR
2: insurance. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.